Well, here we are in rainy Vancouver. Let's record another Trade Waiters. So yeah, I mean, I think first and foremost, um, this episode is going to discuss residential schools and Canada's colonial history, as well as the climate catastrophe. So if you are not feeling like dealing with any of those, um, maybe skip this episode. And I also thought maybe it was worth uh, mentioning that we're recording, or I'm recording from the Grandview Woodland area, which is uh, the traditional part of the traditional lands of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations, uh, which is currently unceded land. Which maybe start with that too. <laughs> I'm just checking. I have an app here to tell me whose land I'm on, uh, just so I make sure I don't miss anybody. But give me a second. I am in the same region as Jeff. Uh, I am on the Musqueam, uh, Kate, and Tsleil-Waututh Haitian land. So pretty close, but uh, there's a lot of territory in Vancouver and uh, we are not in the same part. Right. Yeah, I thought we want to start with that. And then, uh, yeah, our book is Paying the Land by Joe Sacco. I'm excited to talk about a Joe Sacco book. So I got a little background on Joe Sacco. So he's a uh, Maltese American cartoonist slash journalist. I did not know he was Maltese American. And uh, he's famous for his comics journalism, particularly his book, uh, Palestine, 1996, uh, Footnotes in Gaza, 2009. Uh, which are both about the Israeli-Palestinian relations. He also did Safe Area Goraz Day, 2000, and The Fixer, 2003, which are both about the Bosnian War. And so after covering um, the Israeli-Palestine conflict and the Bosnian War, he thought he would go for some really heavy subject matter and deal with the Canadian Northwest Territories. So I was particularly drawn to this book because... Joe Sacco, uh, from my previous readings, always did a really good job of explaining a complex situation in graphic novel form. I thought he did really good journalism with his previous books. And when I heard he was tackling Canada, I was really interested to see his perspective. And I kind of felt like an American parachuting into the Northwest Territories is a really good approach because he's not necessarily completely impartial, but I feel like he's bringing a perspective that wouldn't be there um, if it was any of the involved parties writing a graphic novel about, about it, if that makes any sense. So yeah, so I just, yeah, I think it dealt with, um, I, I, when I originally heard about it, I, I was really focused on it dealing with the oil extraction, resource extraction industry in the Northwest Territories, but it's very much about residential schools and uh, colonialism. And I feel like after finishing this, I'm like, 
thinking that more Canadians, this should be required reading for Canadians, basically. <laughs> uh, so yeah, thoughts. Uh, well, you know what we haven't done yet? We haven't done a character oh. building question. Oh, right. Sorry. Oh man, I just jumped right in. I had all this stuff written. <laughs> I had my big preamble written out. Um, but yeah, we should actually do our character building question. So kind of connected to the themes in this book, I thought I would ask, what is some action you have taken or are taking to deal with the climate crisis? <laughs> <laughs> so I, yeah, so I'm Jeff Ellis and I have been trying to reduce my meat consumption. Um, and I have also been trying to get back uh, to bring in cloth bags with me now that you're allowed, we're allowed. I almost had zero plastic bags pre COVID. And now I have a giant basketball of plastic bags again. Um, so my goal is to make that go away. <laughs> uh, I'm JD and I, uh, I took me a minute to think of like, what am I actually doing other than complaining on Twitter? Complaining on Twitter doesn't count. Hey, complaining on Twitter counts. I also no. complain- Twitter. Does not, does not count. <laughs> um, that's, that's me on my free time. Uh, no, but what I did do this year is uh, I volunteered for the NDP candidate in my riding. Uh, I did some door knocking. I like tried to deliver leaflets. I like stood on a street corner with a, a sign because it was a really close election last time. And it was closer than this again, this time. Uh, and the NDP candidate won and she hey. beat out a pretty terrible conservative candidate. So there you go. I did my part. Yay. <laughs> Good job, JD. Uh, I am Jam. Sustainability is an issue that's very dear to my heart. So I've actually made a lot of decisions to orient my life around it. Uh, I've dedicated my career to sustainable technologies. I'm currently working uh, to develop fuel cell technology to decarbonize long distance trucking. And I make a lot of decisions in my personal life. I bike to work usually uh, <laughs> when, when I'm not working from home, but I, uh, I have an e-bike to take me farther distances. And before I was forced to work from home, I was commuting by bike every single day. Uh, I am still an avid cyclist and most of my trips, whenever I can, I take them by bike. Uh, I'm vegetarian. I've been vegetarian for 15 years or something like that. Uh, I wrote a zine about this called Go Veg if you are interested in vegetarianism in general and certain lifestyle changes that you can make to reduce your meat consumption. I support a number of local climate organizations, including uh, Eco Justice. So I'm a monthly supporter of EcoJustice, which is a group of lawyers, actually, who take on important court cases on behalf of natural systems. So things like uh, protecting caribou habitat and uh, taking on polluters in the region. So they're advocating for uh, areas of nature that don't have a clear advocate for themselves, like a, a group of people. So I think they're doing really important work uh yeah but generally this is uh i think the most important challenge of our time and 
the, the biggest thing we can do is make structural changes. Uh, so yeah, I also am a supporter of the NDP. I wasn't able to physically support them that much other than my vote this year, but I do also regularly support both the National Party and specific candidates because I think they are doing a good job of advancing green initiatives, which we need more of. And if they ever stop doing that, they will lose my support. Absolutely. In a heartbeat. <laughs> Just so they know. <laughs> um, okay, so I don't know, Jam, what were your thoughts on this book? Uh, it's really interesting. I This is a hefty tome. It took me a while to read through it, uh, but I really enjoyed it. I did not know of Joe Sacco's work before, of the, before this. Um, it became very clear uh, that he is a very qualified reporter, uh, and that definitely comes through. But my initial reaction was like, hey, whoa, whoa, hang on. This is like a non-First Nations person writing about you know, a foreigner writing about First Nations, you know, in, Indigenous colonial relations. This is an extremely delicate topic, and I wouldn't trust just like anyone to this. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it is not our call whether he did a good job or not. It is up to the Diné to decide whether this work represents them. But uh, from my perspective, I thought it did a really good job exploring the nuance and the complexity of the situation. I learned a lot from this work, which I thought was like deeply valuable to me as a person who is Canadian and lives here on unceded territories and needs to grapple with this history and what we do about it every day and understanding the perspectives of the people who live there um, in this depth, I think is, is invaluable right now. I do think it is, it is a really, really valuable work that I'm, I'm really glad I read. Yeah. I think my feelings are, are pretty similar. Uh, I did have misgivings like throughout the first half of the book, uh, and similar to, to you jam that like, this is an outsider coming in and like he, he's doing, there's a certain quality of journalism where, what journalism often is, is someone coming from outside, spending a couple weeks somewhere, writing down everything they see, and then going home to report back. And on the one hand, like journalism is really important. Like we are in a, we have a shortage of good journalists in the world right now. And like, I think we're suffering for it. So like journalism is like a really important thing to do, but it's also like, almost always going to be like an outsider reporting on a thing that happened. Like, I think journalism is important to have someone like come in and, and plant a flag somewhere and say, look, everyone, look at this. There's a thing happening. Pay attention to this. Uh, like that's important. Someone needs to do that. Uh, but then I think you need to then also listen to the people who were actually involved. And, and I do think he did a much better job of that in the second half of the book. Right. He's basically just giving a platform to people, to the Dene people to say what they want to say uh, and then just drawing it and, and like not being from the Northwest Territories, not being First Nations. I don't like if, if there's still sort of that uh, journalistic, journalistic stuff going on where I'm assuming he's probably like choosing who to talk to and like what things to write down and what not to write down. Like there's still like journalism happening, but I feel like at least 
from what I can see, he was doing a, a really good job of like handing over the microphone in the second half of it. And like overall, like I, this was a really good book to read. Like I also learned a lot. Um, I'm glad this book exists. I think more people should read it. And yeah, it's like, it's, I, I assume a lot of people who read this will be people who don't know anything about the Northwest Territories, don't know anything about the Dene or about uh, Canada's history. And this will be probably pretty eye-opening to, to those readers. Yeah, yeah hopefully. I, I hope that it does reach a wider audience and also results in greater interest in these cultures and, uh, you know, deeper understanding of this history in general. Yeah, I mean, I didn't know anything about the Diné or the Northwest Territories going into this. And so, you know, I think, speak, you know, speaking as someone who's not likely to end up in the Northwest Territories anytime soon, it was really invaluable to, yeah, have this sort of written history of of some of some of the peoples there and to to like get a broader sense of Canada and just like a lot of the history of just like the land negotiations and just sort of how how sort of the Northwest Territories were being and are currently being kind of managed by the Canadian government was just really eye-opening like you kind of just you're in a province and you kind of just think, oh, this is the way Canada works. But then the territories are indeed territories and it's a completely different, I don't know, it's a different situation there. And- But it isn't though. Like the situation is is different in the Northwest Territories, but it's also not completely different. Mm. So as you mentioned in the beginning, we're on the unceded territories here. Oh yeah. yeah. So there was a land negotiation process here. and I think what's really important to take away from this book is how recent and present these issues are. Mm-hmm. Uh, they yeah. are they are things that we are dealing with now. They are things that are affecting like real lives now. Oh yeah, and I'm sorry. I, I to clarify. I mean, I think like I'm more thinking in terms of just like the um, like yeah, we're on unceded territories in the same way that the Northwest Territories are unceded territories. Um, it's more just like in the structure that you know we have sort of our legislative assembly and like, and I feel like we have much more like of a hierarchy built in at the provincial level where just the way the Northwest Territories like, I mean it 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 sort of ties in with like just. Th- the Diné culture that they just lived off the land and then sort of these governments show up and sort of get them to sign agreements. But like, it doesn't fit even with like the way that they kind of view the way people interact with the land. And just, I don't know, it, the Canadian government sort of takes on this really, you know, patronizing kind of role within sort of the Northwest territories. It's, yeah, I don't know. It, I don't think I quite understood how things were, like how the Canadian government was managing the territories before. And I, I don't think it's the the pro- provincial territorial divide that's the difference. I think it's the the settler indigenous divide. Right. Maybe because the, all of these same episodes would have happened in BC. They just right. Some of them happened earlier. Right. Yeah. No, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Sorry. I think that's right. Thank you. That clarifies that better. Yes. Thank you. 
Yeah. Um, so the, the big difference is that the Diné were so isolated. And mm-hmm. so it took so long for these forces to really get up there. I mean, just transportation wise, the reason that we're able to live here in what is now called Vancouver is because of the rail. Right. Uh, we wouldn't all be here if it wasn't for the rail. And right. the rail, like, it was really interesting in the first half, you know, despite your your uh, valid critique, John, of uh, JD, of the the first half of the book being kind of Josecocentric, I guess, maybe, if you want to put it that way. Um, and I had kind of an interest, I had a similar reaction. But I do think there was value in that difficulty of showing how hard it was to get there. Mm. And like the, the, the difficulties of just traversing this road, even in a modern four by four, which I think goes a long way to kind of setting your understanding of like everything, everything has to go through this journey to get there. Every good, every person, every like medicine, you know? And so it, uh, it is a very isolated place. I thought it was really interesting. The, the scenes later on where they talk about the radio and the information that they were able to get to the radio. And then that the people who uh, who were able to to learn English were able to bring information back and forth and kind of transmit like this is what's happening in the world and yeah it's that isolation that really makes it different but uh, yeah those scenes would have played out in a very similar way yeah uh, yeah I don't think it was so much that uh, Joe Sacco is a character in the book because like, I think that's a good thing to be honest and to like recognize the um effect of the author on what's being written it's more that like the for the first half of the book i was thinking to myself okay what about residential schools when is he going to talk about residential schools he hasn't mentioned like the giant elephant in this room Mm -hmm. and obviously he it ended up he's just doing that for dramatic effect which like fair enough so like it uh, i think there are probably readers who have not heard of residential schools who that's going to be the right order of information to uh, the right order to release the information in so to get the right result that you want as an author but only once he started talking about that I was like okay he does he has talked to these people he does know what the big problem is yeah he's not going to paste over this problem like a lot of other information sources have yes like I I'm an elementary school teacher so in the curriculum, we are supposed to talk about residential schools and the history of colonialism and all that sort of stuff. In, in Canada, we're really lucky in BC that that stuff is in the curriculum. So I have a justification. I can say, no, I have to do this. It's there. It's written down. So I have read some about residential schools. Uh, obviously, there's a lot in this book that I didn't know. Uh, a lot of like every person who went to a residential school is going to have their own story. And the more stories you hear, the more like you can kind of build up a picture of like, what was it really like as a, as a large entity? But yeah, like when, once we started to get to the parts where like, oh, he is going to say this, I have heard of this. Like there, that was the point where I was like, okay, I maybe, maybe I can trust this guy. Maybe he knows what he's doing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It took, it took a while for him to, for me to, for him to earn my trust as well. 
my, my one of, okay, so I have like two critiques of this book, like two little nitpicks, I think, because overall, I think it's really strong and does a really good job. My first critique is that I really, really loved the opening sequence of the book. So the opening sequence, which introduces us to a character, a person, a real person who, who grew up in, uh, in the woods and uh, speaks about Diné culture from a firsthand perspective and just like how that worked. To be honest, like I could have read a whole book just with that. And it's obvious that Joe Sacco wanted to do a more complete modern portrayal of the book. And oh, oh, sorry, he wanted this book to be a more complete modern portrayal of things. And that's fine. But immediately I was like, okay, even if this is uh, an outsider doing this work, just writing this down before this knowledge is lost is a huge value <laughs> and beautifully rendered. And then abruptly that chapter ends and we're introduced to Joe Sacco, the author. And my first critique is that the way that his author portrait is drawn is just so caricaturish. Yes, yes, I was compared, gonna say that too, I yes. hated that. I hated it because at first I thought like that was how all non-natives were gonna be illustrated. And I thought it like totally undermined <laughs> everything he was trying to do so far. But I realized soon enough that it was just, it's how he has chosen to do his own author portrait, which is his purview. But I, I, I found it very jarring and I did not. That's, yeah, he doesn't fit with like anything else in the book. No, that's a, that's a very valid and ongoing critique of all of his work. If you read any comic he he's is. ever done, he draws <laughs> himself as this horrible caricature that he doesn't do this to any other person he only does this to himself and if you actually google a photo of joe sacco he is a very fine looking man he does not need to be so cruel to himself <laughs> i mean i get being an artist and like disrespecting yourself and how you draw yourself but like this crosses a line yeah. that's all yeah yeah it's like it, it's like we have there's a time and a place sir you know <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like this is not a 90s underground comic you cannot draw yourself this way <laughs> like he walked in with those like big floppy shoes <laughs> keep on trucking man you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah you look at the other faces and he can definitely render a decent likeness of uh, another person but he just does not choose to turn that skill on himself. So yeah, no, that's, I it definitely, it's, it's, um, I think it's something I glossed over because I've read other books by him. So I'm like, oh, he's doing it again. But I think <laughs> if you're a first time reader, I think I could see how that could pull you out a little bit. You're just like, wait, yeah. what? Yeah, what? It, it was like, because it was so abrupt. And you would <laughs> like, you were for the first 20 pages or whatever, you were looking at these like exquisitely detailed drawings of like caribou and like natural life of the Diné pre-colonialism and pre-contact or whatever and it was just so gorgeous and immersive and then like for it to you know like hand scene and now it's the, the Joe Sacco comedy hour or whatever you know like not not even that it was comedic that was that was the other weird part it's not even that there was just a, a tone shift I think the tone was consistent I think it stayed respectful. I think it stayed on point, but it's just this character, <laughs> just this caricature. And it, it I, I, I wasn't a fan. Yeah. yeah and like, if you look at all the other portraits in the book, 
they're so well done. Like nobody looks like anybody else. Everybody's their own unique individual. Like no one is like stereotypically racialized. Uh, it's like these, he like went out and like met a bunch of real people and then drew a pretty good impression of what they look like, except for himself. <laughs> yeah, sort of like, are broken. It's like you're watching like a, a dramatic stage play and then just like someone in a Bozo the Clown costume just walks on stage, but just does like the lines with everybody else like normal. And you're like, wait, <laughs> what's going on? I don't understand. Also like just changing topics here a little bit. It's interesting. There are moments in the book where I've seen the historical photos that I can tell he's referencing. Like the, I was just, because it's like, by the time this recording re is released, it'll be after September 30th. But as we're recording this, uh, we're a few days away from National Truth and Reconciliation Day, our first official one in Canada. Uh, and so I've been doing a lot of research just to like get stuff ready to talk about this with my class. And like the, the nuns that we see from the residential schools in the Northwest Territories, like I just saw that in a photo. Like I saw that exact same outfit. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, overall though, like I do think Joe Sacco knows what he's doing. So I was very glad that there were so many different perspectives explored and competing perspectives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There were nuances that, again, like I, I felt I learned something about because I had understood some of the competing nuances, right? I had understood this kind of, okay, residential schools were bad, damaged people and like alcoholism is a problem. And like, now I feel like I have a better understanding of how those things are connected. Mm. I understood that like research extraction was contentious, but a lot of people want them there because of jobs. And again, now I understand the competing nuanced uh, views that people have on that matter of like some of, well, one of the really interesting perspectives that I thought is like research extraction is gonna happen. So it's up to us to have like a very, uh, a very deep hand in the control of it to make sure that water remediation and uh, environmental standards are upheld on our territory as our role as land protectors. Like I find that a really fascinating and nuanced perspective, which is a twist on something that I've heard from engineers before, you know, like uh, I have engineering friends who have gone into oil and gas and they're saying like, by being involved, I can, I can know that I'm doing the best that I can to do it in a responsible way. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, and like I, I really respect the way that he sort of lays out those differing perspectives, those competing perspectives, and just and and doesn't try to negotiate them himself. Like there, he talks to like some of the the leaders, the community leaders who are old of, of the older generation about, uh, and a lot of them are talking about how important it is that they get off government handouts and that they get jobs and make money that way uh, and have self-respect, et cetera, et cetera. And that sort of conflicts with the, the story of traditional Dene life that we're given at the beginning of the book. And I think the contrast is important, but I also think it's important for like Joe Sacco to not be the one to solve that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it is good that 
I, I myself feel like I walked away with, from this book with more questions than answers, which I think is the right, the right way to play it. Like for him to (laughs) think of like, to put back to on his, on his earlier work, like it's like, I did it. I was there for 30 days. I solved Gaza, you know? Oh, I read Palestine and like, that was a thing he did. Like that was one of my big criticisms of Palestine is like, I mean, he didn't, like his he has like what he thinks should be the solution and he didn't invent this like he got it from other people obviously but like I don't know that he's the one to like who, whose job it is to solve the Palestinian situation yeah okay well at least he he learned he didn't do that here though and I, and I think that's good I was waiting to see if he would and he never did it it's been okay. a long time since I uh, read Palestine, so I can't remember. But I, I mean, now I might now I feel like I might have to reread that now. I mean, it, it's been a while for me too, but I'm pretty sure that what he I can't remember how strong he pushes this. So like, I could be like someone else could read the the book and get a different impression from it. If that's entirely possible, but my impression at least was that he thought that a, the only like rational solution would be a single state of Israel and Palestine because they were so integrated with each other that trying to separate them into two states was not going to be viable, which I think is a, a valid perspective, but like, I'm yeah, not Israeli but, or Palestinian. Yeah. So like, Who nobody's asking me. Right. Yeah, right. Interesting. I, I also thought it was very interesting to kind of come back to the Diné. Uh, the, I want to link this to kind of the cottagecore movement. Stay with me. So like (laughs) cottagecore is kind of a romanticized vision of pastoral life. Uh, And one of the major critiques of cottagecore right now is that like pastoral life ain't all that actually. It's kind of hard. It's hard work. You, you city yuppies can't actually just like turn on a dime and become farmers. What are you? Don't kid yourself. You can't even use yeast. (laughs) And uh, I think there is a little bit of that going on, you know, where there is some people who are represented in the book have a very romanticized view of the bush and then life in the bush, like life living off the land in a more direct way. And then there are other people who seem to have a more realistic view of it, uh, like a more tangible memory. Like, yeah, there were some times that we didn't eat for three days. (laughs) <laughs> you know like going out trapping was really really hard it was super cold actually <laughs> and right and so uh I think it is really important especially uh you know from someone who's trying to understand indigenous lifestyles you know it's like it was hard <laughs> it was hard to live the original life and so uh it's not as simple as like oh well you know just go back to trapping then I guess right mm-hmm. <laughs> Right. And it's very interesting. This is something I've seen with uh, people I work with as well, where because so much of indigenous cultures have been like demolished, a lot of the work that needs to be done is like it's very similar to rebuilding a culture from scratch. Um, Mm -hmm. Like sometimes people will just decide like this is what we're going to do. We don't know for sure if this is how people used to do it but we're just going to say it was this. Uh, and like, that's really the only way it can be, I think, because like, it's important to like take care of your culture and like uh, to have a culture and to not just let it disappear. But the only way, to, like cultures are organic things. And part of it is like 
a construction process. And in this case, it's a reconstruction process. But uh, like, I, I, I think it's interesting to see how people have, uh, how that doesn't trip people up, that they're generally okay with like, not knowing everything about the past. Mm. Yeah. And I think there's also this knowledge and acceptance that, uh, okay, the, the ways of the past are somewhat broken, you know, like you can't take the traditional way and meld it with the now contact with the global economy mm -hmm. and the concept of money and the concept of territorial leadership yeah. and things like that. Like it has to evolve. Yeah. It, you have to build something new basically. Yeah. 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 Um, I, yeah, I think like, I mean, man, the, in the second half, when they're going through all the testimonials of residential school survivors, that was a real slog. I appreciated that it then moved into the, the next generation, like the, the generation that didn't go to residential schools and are seem to be part of this big movement to sort of, yeah, build that new culture and sort of come back to the Northwest territories with what they've learned in other, other places. And I don't know, I felt like that was a really hopeful note that it kind of ended on in the book, that it was really looking at this young generation coming up and presenting, I don't know, I, I took a hopeful view of it that like these, this, this younger generation is, is bringing some new stuff to the table and maybe making some of that amalgamation possible to like sort of reconcile contact with the old ways and maybe find some sort of a balance. Yeah, there's a, a saying in education that um, it takes that uh, it, it's going to take seven generations for Indigenous people to get back to the um, control over their lives that they had, the, the sort of to have the, the cultural whatever that they, they use, I'm not explaining this right, but that it, it's, it's a multi-generational process. Mm -hmm. that you can't just like, it took generations to do this damage and it's gonna take generations to recover from it. Yeah, and I think despite, like I think it's really, really important to take away from this fact that like residential schools is not quote unquote over because right. there were these generational effects and, and I thought that the book did a pretty good job of explaining intergenerational trauma and how, like, even if you weren't the person who initially went through this catastrophic event, the ramifications of how it affected you as a person and how it, you know, shattered your identity and your ability to parent really messes up the generation that you're trying to raise. And uh, those problems are still echoing throughout the community. Uh, they're still very present and uh it's not it's still not history it's still present yeah, yeah like, i mean oh there, there are people my age who are residential school survivors absolutely um and no for the, for so people who i think it's important to say this fact that like the last ones closed in like the, the 90s didn't they yes yeah. yes 96 like 96 so for people who, who might be listening from abroad who aren't familiar with residential schools? They they started in the uh, John help me out uh, the, the uh, eighteen like late eighteen hundreds. It was John A. Macdonald, so our okay, first prime yeah. minister. This is like the entire history of Canada. 
Thanks, John. Thanks, John A. <laughs> McDonald. Uh, the 1800s, and it was a very deliberate act. Um, oh, yeah. And it persisted until the 1990s in certain regions. So it's, it's important to know how much of uh, the history of our relationship between our two groups as nations uh, mm -hmm. is dominated by this, uh, this very deliberate act of trying to erase their culture. Yeah, and like they have the quotes, like they, they were very public about this at the time. Like there's the famous one about uh, John A. McDonald. I, no, I think it was like the, it wasn't John A. This wasn't a John A. McDonald quote. It was like the minister of whatever. Yeah. Um, they who put him wanted in... to kill the Indian in the child. Like that's yeah. the quote that most people have heard if they've heard any of them. But there's another one where I think it's the same guy who was, who said that he wanted there to be no Indians left. Like yeah. the, the, the purpose of the residential schools was to be like either you're in the residential school and you are completely assimilated into the mainstream culture or you do not exist. That was the goal. Yeah. yeah yeah and uh yeah and i think that i don't know i think that this expresses i mean it it, it talks about that history in here but it also uh, as you said jam it expresses that intergenerational damage where you it's interviewing multiple generations of people and as you read these stories you kind of see the connective tissue and again this is why i feel like this is this should be like re required reading for Canadians because I think if people read this book, they maybe wouldn't be squawking about. Uh... <laughs> maybe if we could solve problems that easily yeah. with books, I think we'd be in a better place. Right. <laughs> but I do, I do think more Canadians absolutely should read this. Yes. Uh, and I do want to go back to kind of the hopeful note. So it was really, really interesting to, to follow the political awakening maybe I'll, I'll describe it as from certain generations. Like I really enjoyed watching the history of uh, certain leaders going and becoming influenced by other First Nations liberations movements throughout America and learning from other tribes and learning from each other and how these ideas evolved and which competing ideas are of a priority to the, the First Nations leaders who are now coming of age and coming into their own power. So it definitely is really inspiring. I think, if anything, I, I came away with a deeper appreciation for the Denae specifically and a deeper interest and hope that we get more of their voices represented uh, and more opportunities to learn about them and from them and uh, opportunities to support them. Because I think they're a really strong culture. I mean, the, the fact that all of those people survive such horrible events, I think needs to be acknowledged right you know they're they're a really strong culture and they they evolved in a really challenging environment and that's a lot to be respected yeah i've, I've heard residential school survivors talk about uh survivors being warriors like as when they were children they were warriors because every day was a battle absolutely yeah and it, i think some of that does shine through and how certain people who went through that trauma carried with them this, this deep knowledge that it's like, I have to preserve something mm -hmm. like a, 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 a really amazing understanding for such a young age that this colonial force, which I, I can't even fathom trying to understand something like that. <laughs> uh, this colonial force is like deliberately trying to destroy you. 
and dehumanize you and de depersonhood you. And mm -hmm. to have the presence at such a young age to try and resist. <laughs> to, yeah, to and try and how many way. children did resist because yeah. like that that's a, a very often recurring story of like many many forms of resistance yeah it's amazing I was really surprised how many I guess I I didn't get a sense of scale but the the horrible choice that people seem to have to make to allow their children to be taken uh, or suffer some consequences that must have been incredibly severe mm -hmm. or to like escape into the bush and how a lot of First Nations would not have had that option. Uh, so like the, the vision of like someone's coming with a plane to take your kid. How horrifying, like how absolutely horrifying. And how horrifying if you were a kid taken on a plane oh, or uh, and then your children have to face the same fate because mm -hmm. it was like 150 years and maybe it wasn't 150 years in the Northwest Territories because they, there weren't planes to reach all these communities for all of that time. But throughout Canada, it was 150 years. That's yeah. like three generations at least. Yeah. Yeah. Another aspect of the book that I actually really appreciated was uh, some perspective on the mechanisms that brought the nuns into that situation. Mm. So there was a really interesting exploration, like a side exploration of like, who, who were these nuns? And talking about how the culture in Quebec, you know, really encourages Catholic families to have as many children as possible. And some of these nuns were whisked away at the age of 15 to go completely across the country to instruct children who don't speak any English in English, which isn't even their first language and to have very little support and to live in a very harsh environment. Because as I've begun to learn a lot more about residential school systems, one of my big lingering questions is like, why are these people such assholes? Mm. You know, like the broader colonial structure is a little bit easier to understand in terms of like, it's, it's, it's driven by greed and it's driven by these horrible goals that are willing to pave over humanity to achieve it which is awful but the the actual people uh i didn't have a very clear understanding of how that could happen how you could how you could see a child and do that and i think while it is no excuse whatsoever it does help me to understand the nuance of the situation so i think this this book does a good job of that yeah like i think it what that's it, it does a good job of sort of putting the finger on that this is, this is a system, that the yes. fault is this system has been set up to produce a certain result with intent that like the intent is clear because we have the, the, the quotes from the people who built it, but the, the they successfully built a system that would dehumanize and deculturize the students. And part of building that system is setting up the people running it to get that result, regardless of what kind of a person they are. Right. It's almost like the Stanford prison experiments. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Good analogy. I like that. Yeah. 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 Oh, <laughs> awful. Yeah. Absolutely awful. I'm glad. I'm, yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that section though. Cause yeah, that stood out to me uh, as well. And I do think that, yeah, it's, 
it speaks to like, again, it's not an excuse, but I think it speaks to the way that systems are set up to like, like even the people that are kind of like acting on behalf of the state, they're also kind of being oppressed or damaged in a, in a, in a different way in order to prime them to sort of be these like tools for the state that it's like, you know, it's kind of like everybody's kind of being damaged by the state and they all should really turn around and be like, Hey, wait, it's the state. That's the problem. But yeah, no, I actually, I just up in their, their own kind of personal like tragedies. Yeah. I just saw a video. One of the videos I'm going to do with my class uh, by Phyllis Webstead, who's the, the person who started orange shirt day. Uh, and that was one of the things that she said is that the the slogan for Orange Shirt Day is every child matters. Uh, and part of every child matters is that not only were the indigenous kids constantly being told that they were less, that the settler kids were also constantly being told that they were more. And that right. both of those are leading to the problems that we have. And so by saying every child matters, you're saying not just that every indigenous child matters, but that you need to be honest with the settler children too, that every child matters. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really important to keep in mind, I think. I, an interesting analogy kind of popped into my head how if you think of the broader context of research, uh, sorry, resource extraction, another area where this kind of damaged people being primed to do damage on behalf of the state is uh, the tar sands in Alberta. And the people who are working there are mostly migrant workers from the Atlantic provinces who are crushed by poverty. And so the lack of support that the, the populations in the Atlantic provinces have had have resulted in many of them migrating to Alberta to do this dangerous work that is damaging to the environment. And it's another kind of act of desperation or a limited choice. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, these questions are very present. These, pro- these problems <laughs> are still happening. It's not, not in the past. And it, yeah. it's, it's, it's harrowing. Like it is as a, as an environmentalist, as someone who cares a lot about sustainability, it does, it, it is important for the Diné to have agency all over their lands. And I understand their perspective of like, we want to do it so that when it is done, because we can't stop it, it is done properly. But like, it's heart wrenching to me to see, you know, like a pipeline going down at all. But it's also really heart wrenching to know that like, even if that pipeline doesn't go down, the damage to the environment is already reaching them in the north. Mm. Uh, Things like the fish population and caribou migrations being disrupted, like it's already there and they didn't have any agency at all yeah there's a a quote uh somewhere in the book where one of the people that he talks to is talking about climate change and how like if people from the south meaning like anywhere south of 60 want (laughs) to affect climate change like the solution isn't go to the north and like get in the way of pipelines the solution is to like stop using fossil fuels yeah and i i think he means it as like, as an individual, but I I would like add to that and say, as a society, if we want the the North to not be destroyed, we need to stop using its resources. Yeah. Yeah. 
uh, it was actually really interesting uh, how much, like how effectively the book kind of hinges on like single phrases. I felt like that are like, it's a really, really big book. There's a lot of words in this book, but there's like a few sort of key moments or key phrases where like, he's really sort of like, those feel like the important ones. Uh, and they're not really highlighted at all. Like they're, they're not repeated. They're not like followed up on, but like they really stood out in my memory at least. Like there's one at the beginning where he's talking about the Dene tradition of paying the land, which is obviously where the title comes from. Uh, and then there's a, like near the end, he's in an arsenic, uh, I guess it's a gold mine that's full of arsenic. And he's talking about like, we're the, we're the people who like come here to take gold from the land and pay it back with arsenic. <laughs> right right so, yeah. like he doesn't spend a lot of time on that but like that that single line is like okay that that's all we need that does it yeah i i enjoyed how the chapters were kind of broken up with those little like key phrases as well like each chapter had a little title on it um and then that would be something that would come up later like that would be a spoken phrase at some point in the in that chapter which i thought was just like a fun fun way of kind of breaking up this hefty book uh, into sections, which um, oh, something I didn't mention from earlier, but if you read the, the notes at the back, this started as a short 90 page uh, magazine feature and he got inspired to expand on it. So originally it was just going to be a, a shorter article in a larger publication and it then spun out into this 250 plus uh, graphic novel. So once he came up to the Northwest Territories, he suddenly realized he had lots of material to, to work with. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating place. And I'm glad that, I'm glad that someone was so interested in the history, I guess. Like I, I think Canadian, almost Canadian mythos is almost boring as a defense, <laughs> if that makes Absolutely. sense. It's like, we yes. we kind of paste over, like, don't get interested in Canadian history. There's nothing to see here. It's not actually interesting. Nothing. Like, really ha, ha, ha. We're so yeah. polite. Exactly. Are we exactly. though? <laughs> yeah. Hey, and guys. so for someone to come up and acknowledge that actually there is a lot going on here and a lot has happened and is continuing to happen. Um, I think it, it's good to have such a a thorough exploration like yeah a thorough exploration of a very uh specific issue that does have broad implications as well so even though this is a story about the Diné it is uh playing out all over uh over and over again and certainly throughout the United States as well mm -hmm. yeah all over the world like yeah uh there are so many like communities around the world who don't have political power who do have resources and like people come and take their resources yeah yeah i can think of a number of places oh <laughs> scary yeah i want to go into one other nitpick that i had oh, yeah, this book. okay and nitpick number two so uh many indigenous languages do not have a written form by nature and fairly recently an effort has been made to alphabetize, I don't know what the right word is, to, to create a, a written version of the language. Because some of the phonetics 
in indigenous languages are unique. There are some unique characters that are used in that transliteration. I understand why Joe Sacco wants to defer only to the experts in terms of pronunciation guides. However, I wish he had tried a little bit to give us a pronunciation hit, hint for some of the uh, some of the tribes and place names the first times mm. they showed up because the language, the the romanization, I'll, I'll say for lacking the more correct term, because it contains non-English characters, cognitively, I'm forced to gloss over it, mm. which is mm-hmm. not That's what fair. I want to do. Right. And I found myself like slowing down to be like, no, don't, don't just gloss over it. Try to figure it out. And I like, I immediately flipped to the back to be like, oh, is there a pronunciation guide I can refer to here? And there wasn't. There was mm. just a hyperlink, which uh, I didn't have time to do my due diligence and really like drill down to the hyperlink. I did do some searching for yeah. some other resources and sucks. Like <laughs> BC has some decent ones to be like, here's all the, the First Nations in BC and how they're all pronounced, but the North doesn't have yeah. something yeah. easily found. But like, I wish the first time there had been some like breakdown on how it's pronounced. So I could like put that in my head. And then every time I saw that word could go back to that first pronunciation. Yeah, I, I'm going to echo that actually. I also uh, was online trying to find out like, how do I say Talicho, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I looked in the back and yeah, the these long hyperlinks. Uh, I typed mm-hmm. a few in and some of those links need to be updated. So yeah, I figured. Um, <laughs> It would have been better, I think, as you say, to have just had kind of a glossary of some of some type. Um, yeah, and accepting that it will go out of date as things evolve, but I think it's a disservice to the reader to not to not have, make an attempt. Yeah, I I agree with that. I agree with that. And this is this is a, a very very small nitpick, but I want to attach my tiny nitpick onto your small nitpick. In the back, when he's talking about the languages, he talks about how like, oh, the spelling system is kind of debated, like there isn't really, like they're still working on a single spelling system. Like, I'm not sure that's necessarily the case because the Inuit just decided to not have a standard spelling system and that they're going to let every town and region and community like have their own spelling system because like having a single agreed upon writing system of um academy francais for a language is a very colonial perspective that's exactly and the Inuit right, yeah. just said no like why we, we're just gonna not do that and like i don't think we should assume that the dene are gonna have their own uh academy francais at any point either yeah but we do have a linguistic alphabet yes. <laughs> with phonemes that yes. you can use yeah. <laughs> So I I agree completely that it's like, it's a colonialist attitude to want an imposed standardized version, but like as a reader who's trying to respectfully engage with a culture, like forcing that reader to not be able to pronounce it uh, or putting up these barriers when someone wants to learn how to pronounce it is uh, I think counter to those goals. Sure, yeah. Uh, we don't have a lot of time left. Uh, any other thoughts? Great work. Uh, thank you for recommending it, Jeff. I yeah, really, I really thought it was valuable, and I'm glad we got to read it in advance of uh, Orange Shirt Day. Although, uh, 
I, there, there's going to be lots of programming for us to absorb, it sounds like, which is great. And uh, uh, another another quote from one of the videos I just saw, uh, every day is Orange Shirt Day. Heck yes. Right. <laughs> so like you can listen to this episode any day. You can read this book any day. It'll still <laughs> be relevant. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would definitely recommend this book. Uh, I uh, hope that someone who is Dene can also write a book yes. um, on this on these topics. But uh, until then, like, you got to get information where you can. And we got a whole cartoonist journalist who's spent a bunch of time up there. Let's uh, take advantage of that. All right. Well, should we do some shout outs? Uh, I have a shout out. I have a great shout out. I'm going to shout out uh, the book I'm reading to my class right now, which is called Fatty Legs. It's a YA chapter book. It's by Christy Jordan Fenton and Margaret Pokiak Fenton. Uh, Margaret is a residential school survivor. She went to the residential school in Eklavik in the Northwest Territories. And she wrote a book about the two years she spent there. It is age appropriate for children and it's about all the uh terrible things that happened to her when she was there it's called fatty legs because all the other kids were making fun of her they called her fatty legs oh her socks uh my name is jam and i have two shout outs so these are two pieces of indigenous media if you want to uh explore some indigenous voices and what they have to say about their own contemporary circumstances. One is a CBC TV show called Trickster, which is a uh, supernatural drama that takes place in Kitimat, BC and does explore some of these uh, issues of uh, resource extraction and resistance and jobs and things like that. So highly recommended. Uh, another one that is recently releasing is uh, called Reservation Dogs. So this is the US perspective, but it is a comedy that follows a group of Indigenous youth as they try to survive the res. And it takes place more in the Southwest. And I think in the States it's available on Hulu, but I heard that up here it's available on Disney+. Plus. I think that's right. All right. And I'm uh, Jeff Ellis, and uh, I'm just going to shout out High Water Press, which is a graphic novel publisher uh, that's a branch of Portage and Main Press in Manitoba. And they publish lots of Indigenous uh, creators' work. They've got lots of graphic novels made by Indigenous creators. So if you want to support an Indigenous comic creator, check out High Water Press. You'll probably find something cool there. The Trade Waiters is presented by Cloudscape Comics. We'd like to thank Sleuth for the music. You can find us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thank you.